Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the links to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. It's 3.25 on the afternoon of Christmas Eve 1980 and there's chaos in the centre of Sydney. A bomb's just exploded in the flagship Woolworths Variety Store located in the building that houses the company's national headquarters. Hundreds of shocked staff and shoppers who evacuated with just moments to spare are now panicking. Pandemonium reigns as they flee into moving traffic and tumble over each other trying to escape downstairs into the Town Hall railway station. On the George Street footpath, Woolworths sales assistant Iris Simpkins lays in a faint. A few other people have minor cuts sustained when the shopfront windows blew out. As for casualties inside the store, no one knows because no one's sure if everyone got out. And no one can go into check because a Woolworths security officer has been handed a note saying there's another bomb. Out in the middle of George Street, young police constable Alan Duncan, who was inside the corporate entrance when the bomb exploded, tries to direct traffic despite being nauseous from shock and deafened by the blast. Nearby, John Hendry, Woolworths Director of Communications, shelters with a security man behind the raised concrete entrance to Town Hall Station in anticipation of another explosion. There's a cacophony of sirens as police cars, fire trucks and ambulances converge on the scene. Police shut down the city block around the Woolworths store and do their best to keep crowds back at a safe distance. Sydney soon gridlocked on the one afternoon people most want to get home to their families. Chaos and fear ripples across the city as three other Woolworths stores are evacuated because of bomb threats. At the town hall scene, 130 Woolworths staff are taken to a nearby store to be assessed for shock and given restorative coffees. The worst affected, including Constable Alan Duncan, Iris Simpkins and those with glass cuts, are taken by ambulance to Sydney Hospital. 
Onlookers watch as three army officers arrive with bomb-sniffing dogs. This uniformed trio marches across the now empty intersection of George and Park Streets and into the Woolworths store. The initial search brings good news. There's no one injured or dead inside. That's a minor miracle. But it'll be three long hours before the bomb squad gives the all clear. Now, there's a long night ahead for the police scientific squad. Moving into the store, they look for clues amid the battered dolls and shattered board games. Yet to leave for his traditional family Christmas Eve dinner, Woolworths executive John Hendry accompanies detectives into the store to inspect the wreckage. The toy department has been demolished, but it's in the undamaged staff room that John sees the most poignant scene. A big stuffed panda and other presents have been left there when Woolworths workers fled for their lives. Many of his colleagues won't be giving gifts to their kids tomorrow, just as many will be short of cash over the Christmas break because they were unable to pick up their pay packets. This strikes John as immensely sad during what's supposed to be a festive, cheerful season. Yet John isn't just sad, he's also appalled and bloody angry. How could this Mr. Dunmore, which is what the bomber calls himself, be so ruthless and reckless to place a bomb in the toy department? on Christmas Eve. I'm Michael Adams and this is part two of the special Forgotten Australia series, The Woolworths Bombings. While the blast at the Woolworths Town Hall store on Christmas Eve was shocking, there had been numerous similar, if not as serious, extortion attempts over the past decade in Sydney. The most infamous was the Qantas bombing hoax of May 1971. Calling himself Mr. Brown, 37-year-old English-born mastermind Peter McCary had placed a real bomb in a Sydney airport locker to convince Qantas he'd put another such device on a packed passenger jet that had just taken off for Hong Kong. He said if the plane descended below 20,000 feet, the bomb would detonate and kill everybody aboard. Mr Brown demanded a half-million-dollar ransom in return for telling authorities where the device was hidden and how to disarm it. With only hours to avert a disaster that would kill more than 100 people, Qantas paid up and the disguised Mr. Brown escaped in a combi van with $500,000 in new $20 notes. That the extortionist had asked for the ransom to be paid in uncirculated currency had made it easier for the police to record the sequential serial numbers. Having escaped the handover due to police bungling their surveillance attempts, Mr. Brown called to say there was no bomb on the plane. He got away with it, at least for three months, when his big spending ways resulted in a tip-off. Peter McCurry, aka Mr Brown, was arrested, convicted on evidence that included the serial numbers, and sentenced to 15 years in jail, though he'd end up serving just over half that before being released and deported. Mr Brown's threat had been an audacious hoax. But between November 1974 and February 1975, 26-year-old Sydney printer Raymond John Gilmore did nearly $100,000 damage when he bombed two business premises. Raymond Gilmore demanded $410,000 from the Reserve Bank to stop his terror campaign. His handover and escape plan involved police throwing the cash from a train. Instead of catching the ransom, he got caught. 
During proceedings, as had been the case with Mr Brown, tape recordings of Raymond Gilmore's extortion phone calls were played for the court. He was found guilty but appealed because he hadn't been allowed to have a phonetics expert testify in his defence. A retrial was ordered, and this time Sydney University voice expert Alex Jones actually testified that it wasn't Raymond Gilmore on the recordings. The jury disagreed, and he was sentenced to eight years. In April 1975, 27-year-old Graham Francis Abbey, a convicted armed robber, escaped on his very first day of day release. What he did with his newfound freedom was call Woolworth's then-general manager Colin Hewins and threaten to blow up the town hall store if he wasn't paid $50,000. Arrangements were made for Mr Hewins to meet the extortionist at a hotel to hand over the ransom. When Graham Abbey arrived, he gave the prearranged code, which was Snoopy's in the IRA. Snoopy wasn't in the IRA any more than the man in front of Graham Abbey was the Woolworths boss. Instead, it was an undercover detective. Graham Abbey was arrested and he wound up getting five years for the extortion, formerly known as demanding money with menaces, as well as a bonus three months jail for his escape. Then there was a 49-year-old man who sent two letters to Coles in Sydney in early 1978, threatening a bombing campaign if he didn't get $250,000. Arrangements were made to put the cash in a parcel in a city store, which he then picked up, only to be followed by 15 detectives who were watching where he went and who, if anyone, he handed the money to. After half an hour, they swooped, and he became the latest would-be extortionist to end up empty-handed and in handcuffs. The lesson from these cases was pretty simple. Extortion threats were easy to make. Collecting the cash and getting away with it? That was far harder. Calls would be taped for voice recognition, which meant code words and code names didn't provide much protection value. Ransom cash was traceable via serial numbers. Getting away with that loot would be next to impossible. Mr. Brown had only escaped initially because of failed police surveillance. They hadn't made that mistake again since, and they'd shown they'd use large undercover operations to fool a courier and follow him if they suspected he was working for a mastermind. While bomber extortionists had a poor track record of success, there was one such criminal who entered folklore in the 1970s. This was American plane hijacker D.B. Cooper. In November 1971, flying on a passenger Boeing 727 between Portland and Seattle, he'd announced he had a bomb and demanded $200,000. Landing, he was paid and released the passengers before he ordered the pilots to take off again. Mid-flight, he parachuted from the plane at an altitude of 3,000 metres and was never seen again. Some said he died after jumping. But because no body or cash were ever found, and his true identity was never established, D.B. Cooper became a legend as an extortionist whose clever exit strategy meant he'd gotten away with it. Maybe. As it turned out, there hadn't been a second bomb in the Woolworths Town Hall store, and that scare had come about via a strange misunderstanding. A deaf man who was unable to speak had been walking through the city when a shop employee had asked him what was going on at Town Hall. Unable to reply verbally, he wrote his answer, something to the effect of, there was a bomb in Woolworths. 
Like a game of Chinese whispers, this note was passed around until it ended up in the hands of a company security officer. He gave it to police, who understandably thought it was a further threat. On Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, Sydney CIB scientific squad officers scoured the wreckage in the Woolworths store. The seat of the explosion was a concrete pillar in the toy department. That the bomb had been placed there wasn't just callous, it also made for a confusing crime scene. That was because so many toys used batteries and gears, components that might be expected in a timer and detonator. Officers did find a shredded 6 volt battery, which they thought may have been part of the device. They also found metal discs they couldn't account for. Other than that though, as had been the case at Warilla and Maitland, police found no definite physical evidence of the type of explosive used. In those cases, it had been reasonably assumed, once the ransom letter was received, that the bombs had been made with the gelignite stolen from the quarry in Dunmore and that they'd been detonated with a timer. The Town Hall case, though, was slightly different. That was because the phone warning had come at 3.10pm and it had given 10 minutes for the evacuation. Yet the blast hadn't happened for 15 minutes. Maybe the bomber had built in a buffer. There was another possibility. While it wasn't made public then, Detective Sergeant John Anderson, leader of the task force trying to catch the Woolworths bomber, would later speculate this disparity might mean the device was set off by remote control. If so, it indicated the bomber had wanted to minimise the possibility of casualties. So he'd watched the evacuation, and when he thought everyone was clear, he'd pressed the remote control button. Thing was though, he couldn't have known for sure that everyone was safely out. While the scientific squad didn't find anything they could confirm was part of the bomb on the ground floor, officers did make a more promising find upstairs in the first floor men's bathroom. In a cubicle, on the floor beside a toilet bowl, were two lengths of blue insulation tape. Police believed these were offcuts left over when the bomber taped together the components of the device. This tape evidence didn't seem like much, but it was to prove vital. Detective Sergeant John Anderson's task force investigating the Woolworths extortion bombings was boosted to 20 core personnel in the wake of the town hall blast. They were based in a large conference room at the former CIB building in Surrey Hills. This space was ideal because it had nearly two dozen telephones, was air-conditioned against the summer heat, and was removed from the present CIB headquarters, meaning detectives wouldn't be distracted by other police activities. In the 48 hours after the blast, a lot of people's Christmases were interrupted or cancelled entirely as the task force worked the case. They took tips from the public, and they scoured lists of Woolworths personnel, past and present. With the help of more than 100 Sydney detectives, a small army of potential witnesses were interviewed about who and what they'd seen. From these investigations, the police put together a composite photograph of a suspect. He was aged 25 to 30, about 5'8", slim, with a fair complexion and shoulder-length blonde hair. This was the man who'd been acting oddly in the toy department and carrying a brown paper bag measuring 12 by 8 inches that presumably contained the bomb. For Woolworths executive John Hendry, Christmas wasn't too good. He had made it to his home in the eastern suburbs in time for dinner on Christmas Eve. But after that, he hardly had a relaxing night. 
he got very little sleep and his phone rang constantly from 6am on Christmas morning. John had made a present for his little granddaughter, but he couldn't stick around to watch her play with it because he had to assist the police and deal with media inquiries. He was also keenly aware that whenever the phone rang at his home or in at the office, it could be Mr Dunmore with further demands. Speaking with John Hendry's daughter and sons recently, they told me they were all on edge and, like the families of other senior Woolworths executives, were under around-the-clock police guard. They even had police helicopters doing regular flybys over their home. On Christmas Day, John announced that Woolworths was offering a $250,000 reward, the largest in Australian history, for information that resulted in the conviction of the bombers. He said the bombers had committed an act of horrendous terrorism. Quote, that anyone could place a bomb in the kiddies section on Christmas Eve is shocking. That night, the TV news showed the identical image of the suspect and police received 20 calls in response. Police told the press they believed the bomb had comprised two sticks of gelignite and a timer and detonator. They said they knew where the explosives had come from, but wouldn't say more than that. What still wasn't revealed was that Woolworths had received that $1 million ransom letter more than 48 hours before the bomb had gone off. Officially, police and the company said they were expecting an extortion demand to be made. Newspapers weren't published in Sydney on the 25th of December. The bombing, though, was front page all over Australia on Boxing Day. The Sydney Morning Herald's headline read, Bombers target the toy department on Christmas Eve. A dramatic photo showed John Hendry and the Woolworths security man ducking behind the town hall station entrance a minute after the blast, while behind them people scrambled through traffic and crowds looked on from the far side of the George and Park Street intersection. Another headline told readers, Police pin hopes on quarter million dollar reward. John Hendry reassured the paper's readers that Woolworths stores were now being protected day and night by additional security guards and that police were doing spot patrols. All of the company's 256 stores, Town Hall being the exception, would be open tomorrow. The bombed flagship store he expected would reopen the following Monday, the 29th of December. The Sun newspaper's Boxing Day edition went with the front-page screamer, Woolies Bomber is a maniac. Expert tells he doesn't care how many die. The article said the task force had consulted psychiatrists. Quote, Detectives have been told that the Woolworths Bomber is completely deranged and does not care if children are killed. The article continued, Quote, Medical opinion is that, driven by anger and frustration, he has reached the stage where he doesn't care if he kills. The paper reported Woolworths shop assistants had told police that more than 20 children were in the toy department at the time the bomb had been placed. This was horrific. An accidental early detonation would have almost certainly meant the massacre of dozens of kids and their parents. The Daily Telegraph went with the front page headline, quote, quarter of a million dollars for mad bomber. A senior task force officer told the paper, quote, it is only a matter of time before somebody is killed if he is not caught quickly. By Saturday the 27th of December, the police had released a composite photo of a second suspect. 
This was the man who'd approached the Channel 7 news crew outside the Hilton Hotel in the lead up to the explosion and said a bomb was going to go off in Woolworths. He was in his 40s, clean shaven, balding, short at around 5'3", and stockily built. Channel 7's camera crew had even captured him in the background of one of their shots. That night, the station played their exclusive footage and soon after received a menacing call from a man who said, quote, You'd be mad if you thought I'd give myself up over a film clip. When Channel 7 played it again the following night, they got another call telling them not to show the clip again, promising there'd be a bombing in Auburn, in Western Sydney, the following morning. With so many hoax calls flooding in, it was impossible to know whether this was the real bomber. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. With two identikit photographs to work with, police were now comparing these images with photos in employee files, past and present. Yet, what was strange about these photo fits was how different they were to other witness descriptions of a suspicious, bearded, curly-haired man seen loitering around the Woolworths store and leaving shortly before the explosion. Not that the newspapers were aware of this just like they weren't aware that police had not only already identified a prime suspect, but that they'd been following him for days over thousands of kilometres. While the potted history of 1970s bomb extortion attempts we heard earlier mostly comprised hoaxes, during this period there was also a short, sharp series of explosions in the city and in Canberra that were accompanied by no demands. On the 10th of March 1973, a night bomb caused minor damage to the front doors of the British High Commission in Canberra, and another on that day did similarly slight damage to one of the steps of Parliament House. A week later in Sydney, someone placed a two-and-a-half-pound night bomb in a church in Darlinghurst. That same day, someone threw a stick of night at a government car. In Sydney on the 14th of April, a gelignite device exploded in the washroom of the Daily Mirror's offices, the blast wave strong enough to knock an employee off his feet in a nearby corridor. Two days later, a bomb exploded in a Paddington pub in the middle of the night, and a stick of gelignite was also thrown into a nearby TAB. In the early evening of the next day, Tuesday, April the 17th, Father Harry Kennedy was saying Mass for 30 to 40 people in the chapel at St. Mary's Cathedral. Another priest was hearing confessions, and there were also people walking around the church. A young female student saw a tall man with a dark complexion, a beard and a moustache run from the cathedral. Seconds later, a bomb went off in the back of the church. This blast wrecked six confessionals, splintered ten heavy wooden pews and shattered stained glass windows. It was a miracle that no one was hurt or killed. This bomb had been far larger than the others, comprising eight sticks of gelignite. Next, it was Canberra's turn again. On the night of the 22nd of April, a Parliament House night watchman was inside the building when he heard a noise out front. 
As he approached, a gelignite bomb went off and damaged the plate glass front doors. He too was lucky to escape uninjured. That same day, there was more blast damage done again to the doors of the British High Commission and the entrance to the Federal Treasury Building. Another bomb caused far more substantial damage to an electrical substation. The next day, the 23rd of April, police arrested the alleged bomber as he lay on a sleeping bag in the bush on the slopes of Mount Pleasant. He still had a large quantity of gelignite in his possession. Peter Bernard Wood, aged 34, had once been a barrister. He admitted he was responsible for the Sydney and Canberra bombings, but he said he wasn't guilty because he'd carried them out to protest Australian society's apathy and materialism. While it was clear Peter Wood was suffering mental illness, diminished responsibility wasn't used in his defence. He was found guilty on eight charges in Canberra and sentenced to five years jail. He'd be eligible for parole after 15 months only if doctors thought it was safe for him to be released. Three years later, in May 1976, just as he was about to be released, Peter Wood faced court for the five Sydney bombings. This time, he pleaded guilty. Commenting it was a miracle that no one had been injured, the judge sentenced him to eight years jail for the St Mary's Cathedral bombing and five years each on the other four charges. While that was a total of 28 years, Peter Wood's sentences were to be served concurrently and his non-parole period was just four years. In October 1979, Peter Wood, who'd been receiving ongoing psychiatric treatment, escaped from jail. He was recaptured a few days later without incident. By December 1980, he'd been released and was back on the streets and living in Sydney. Peter Wood had dark curly hair and a beard, matching the description of that man seen hurrying away from the Woolworths store just before the blast. When police were unable to locate him on Christmas Eve, he went right to the top of their list of persons of interest. Investigations revealed Peter Wood had travelled to Wollongong and was staying with a relative. Police staked out this house around the clock. When Peter Wood left, two undercover detectives tailed him back to Burwood in Sydney. There, he visited with his mother. The suspect then went to Central Station and boarded the Indian Pacific train. The undercover men, they got tickets and got on too. They kept Peter Wood under observation for more than 1,000 kilometres. When the train reached Broken Hill and he got off, so did they. Instead of finding a place to stay, the suspect's activities became more suspicious when he walked to the outskirts of the town and stuck out his thumb. By the time Peter Wood got a lift with a truck, the detectives were in a position to follow the vehicle, which they did for 400 kilometres to Port Augusta in South Australia. Writing about this later, Task Force leader Detective Sergeant John Anderson would say this was possibly the longest continuous follow in New South Wales police history. Four days after the Woolworths Town Hall bombing, Sunday the 28th of December, these two tenacious detectives still had Peter Wood staked out to see what he'd do next. Meanwhile, back in Sydney that night, security guard Robert Smith was doing the rounds of the Phoenix Shopping Centre at Liverpool. At half past ten, he found a broken window and a forced door that led into a corridor beside the Woolworths store. Right ahead of him was a Tui's beer carton wrapped in tape. When he heard it ticking, Robert Smith got the hell out of there and called the police. Officers sealed off the surrounding streets and summoned everyone. More police, 
firemen, paramedics and the army bomb squad. Padded in protective gear, one of these soldiers went into the shopping centre to get a look at the beer carton. While he did this, his colleagues assembled a shotgun-toting robot. When the soldier came out, the bomb squad sent this remote-controlled machine in and used it to fire a blast into the carton. There was no detonation, so the soldier went back in. Inside the ripped-open beer carton, he saw a stick of gelignite attached to an alarm clock. He cleared out, and the squad used the robot to drag the bomb outside. Just after 2am, after more than three hours of this drama, the device was made safe. Upon examination, the bomb squad experts realised it had always been safe. There was no battery in the clock and no detonator, so it could never have exploded. The gelignite was also different to that stolen from the quarry in Dunmore that the Woolworths bomber had used as his codename in the still-secret demand letter. The Liverpool beer carton bomb was an elaborate hoax. At 10 o'clock the next morning, Monday the 29th of December, Woolworths General Manager Tony Harding got a phone call from a man calling himself Mr Dunmore. He asked if the company had received the million dollar ransom demand. When Mr Harding said he had, the caller hung up. Asked by detectives to describe the voice, he said it had sounded like the man was speaking with a southern European accent. Task Force detectives and Woolworths management decided that further contact from the extortionist needed to be channelled to one person. The ransom letter had specified that person should be company chairman Eric McClintock. But he wasn't available, so it was decided that John Hendry would pose as the chairman. Telecom would try to trace the origin of the calls and would arrange with police for future conversations with the extortionist to be recorded. 1,500 kilometres west, in Port Augusta, the two undercover detectives had been watching Peter Wood at the time this latest Mr Dunmore call had been made. He hadn't made it, so they returned to Sydney. Just a couple of hours after Mr Dunmore's call, the Daily Mirror newspaper had a massive exclusive. Headline, Bombers Demand, $1 million. Someone had leaked the extortion letter to the newspaper and it printed lengthy extracts on the front and inside pages. The article included the revelation that Jellignite had come from the Dunmore Quarry and that the bomber had enough explosives for many, many more bombs. The Daily Mirror also revealed the Mr Dunmore codename. The ABC and commercial radio stations, along with the TV news, picked up the story and ran with it. Now everyone in Sydney and across Australia knew the name Mr Dunmore. By 11 that morning, there'd already been half a dozen bomb threats made against Woolworths stores in Sydney and regional New South Wales. After the Daily Mirror hit the newsstands, this stream of threats became a tsunami. There were 41 that day against Sydney businesses, 30 of them Woolworths stores. There were also threats made in Brisbane, Melbourne and Adelaide. Many of these callers, they now identified themselves as Mr Dunmore. Sydney's The Sun newspaper reported the next day of its rival tabloid, quote, Police are furious that the extortionist letter containing the code word was leaked. Yet The Sun and the Sydney Morning Herald both reported police internal investigations indicated the leak had been by a senior officer. This could have been a case of loose lips. But there was a strong chance this was a deliberate leak, meant to goad the bomber into making contact on terms reset by the police. 
As it stood on Monday morning, it had been nearly five days since the bombing and the culprit had only made one brief untraceable call that morning which offered no insight into his psychology. It was obvious that revealing the codename would lead to hoaxers calling themselves Mr Dunmore. What was also highly likely was that the real Mr Dunmore would be disturbed that his secret identity had been revealed against his orders and was now being used by these fakers. By framing it as a leak and saying they were furious, the police had plausible deniability, while at the same time laying everything out for the public and putting the bomber on the back foot. Whether the leak was strategic or not, the next day's media coverage which was orchestrated by the police and Woolworths, only intensified pressure on the bomber to make a move. Sydney's papers all ran stories whose point was that he was doomed to fail because the police, Woolworths and its customers just wouldn't be intimidated. The Daily Mirror told its readers an unnamed Woolworths source had said there was no way the ransom would be paid. The Daily Telegraph gave the company a huge PR victory with its front page headline, Crowds Defy the Bomber, Stores Packed Despite Threats. Their article began, quote, Defiant shoppers flooded back to Woolworths yesterday despite the recent bombing and a spate of hoax calls. Woolworths management is adamant they will not give in to the extortion demand for $1 million. The paper reported the town hall store had been packed. Long-term Woolworths customer Judith Jones said she'd continue shopping no matter what. Quote, I've been shopping at Woolies for years and I'm not going to stop because of the bomb threats. The police will catch these madmen and when they do, they should be locked away forever. The article said large numbers of undercover police were keeping careful watch on stores and that all bags were being searched on entry. The message here was, the bomber wasn't going to be able to plant another device easily. At the Reevesby Woolworths store, which had been evacuated that morning after a bomb threat, loyal customer Claude Lang told a Daily Telegraph reporter, quote, If you're going to get done in, you're going to get done in anyway. You could die crossing the road, so why worry about the extremely unlikely chance of getting blown up? A company spokesman named Tom Harvey told the Sydney Morning Herald that trading was as busy as usual after long public holidays. Quote, Our customers and staff have responded marvellously. Even where we have had to evacuate stores, everything has gone well. Staff have operated systematically and customers have been moved from the stores in orderly fashion. One customer told our staff, Don't worry, Woolies, it will take more than a bomb threat to stop me shopping at your stores. That's really tremendous. 40 years after London had faced the Blitz, Sydney was going to keep calm and carry on shopping. But a tiny minority was going to carry on hoaxing, effectively keeping up pressure on Mr Dunmore's behalf. The same day all these articles appeared, Tuesday the 30th, 20 phone threats were made against Sydney Woolworths stores. One of these saw the town hall store evacuated again. Uniformed police blocked off parts of George and Park Streets as detectives spent an hour searching for a bomb that wasn't there. Across the state, 200 further police had been pulled off other duties to respond and search targeted premises. The Sun ran an editorial titled, Hit the Hoaxes. Quote, What sort of sick minds are responsible for this kind of rat baggery is anybody's guess. Each call has to be checked. 
with the subsequent drain on police manpower and security. The cost must run into millions. The pressure on police, Woolworths and their staff grows with every crazy hoax. But to their great credit, they have stayed cool and methodical in their approach. It should be clear to the extortionist that their mad scheme has failed and that there is tremendous support for Woolworths and the police. Police also told The Sun they were expecting another bombing and another extortion demand in what Detective Sergeant John Anderson called a, quote, campaign of terror. At a press conference that day, Detective Sergeant William Tunstall maintained that the real bomber had not made contact with Woolworths for 48 hours. He also made this appeal, quote, Even though his codename, Mr. Dunmore, has been revealed, there are many other ways he could establish that he is the real bomber when he next contacts Woolworths. Amid that day's onslaught of coverage, information and misinformation, deliberate and otherwise, at 2.45pm, Woolworths headquarters received a phone call from Mr. Dunmore. He wanted to speak to Eric McClintock. Instead, the call went to John Hendry, who posed as the chairman. He asked, How do I know you are the genuine Dunmore? I have had so many calls using the name Dunmore. The vaguely European-accented voice at the other end replied, Advise the police that we gained entry through the side wall with a hacksaw. A Holden utility was abandoned on the Princess Highway. This sealed it. This man on the phone knew unpublished details of the Jellignite theft in Dunmore. The extortionist said he would now identify himself as Holden when he called. Mr. Dunmore chided, quote, You release the details to the press. John Hendry also had plausible deniability and said, We didn't do that. The bomber let it go. Quote, All right, this is what you must do. Mr. Dunmore said that Woolworths had to contact a Mr. Stewart at the Australian Bullion Company to buy the $250,000 in gold. The quarter million dollars worth of diamonds should be arranged via a Mr. Wilkinson at the Proud's jewellery store. Then Mr. Dunmore said, I will contact you later, and he hung up. As far as the newspapers, radio and television were concerned, Woolworths was standing firm and wasn't going to pay the ransom. In reality, and against the advice of police, the company had decided to comply with the bomber's demands. Customers might be largely undaunted at the moment and sales mostly unaffected, but another bombing would change all of that. And far worse, it might injure and kill staff and customers. Woolworths might be willing to play ball, but Sydney police, they weren't going to let the bombers get away with $1 million, not after terrorising Sydney. The task force was determined to get these guys with one of the biggest police operations in New South Wales history. Its codename would be Operation Alpha. I'm Michael Adams, and you've been listening to the second instalment of the special Forgotten Australia series, The Woolworths Bombings. The next part will be out very soon, so make sure you're subscribed to get it as soon as it's released. If you've enjoyed Forgotten Australia, I'd love it if you could leave a review and rating at iTunes or wherever you get your podcast because it'll help the show reach other people. Forgotten Australia is written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. As always, thanks for listening.
Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.